And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi there, I'm Luke Hallam, an associate editor of Persuasion, and I just published a piece called Britain Needs a Real Constitution. So the US has a codified constitution, which means its constitution is in one authoritative document that everyone knows. The UK doesn't have that. Its constitution is essentially made up of various conventions that have been passed down through the mists of time over hundreds of years. This has a number of drawbacks, which is why I think it's time to codify the UK's constitution. First of all, it's important for just basic principles of transparency and rationality. So Queen Elizabeth II just passed away and Charles III just became king of the United Kingdom. All the various conventions governing when he becomes king, what ceremonies are appropriate, how executive power is passed down, things like that, especially if the monarchy is to retain democratic legitimacy, need to be codified within a single document. The second reason, I think, for codifying the constitution is to patch over various holes which were exposed by a former prime minister, Boris Johnson. So over the years, he has tried to shut down parliament illegally. The Supreme Court thankfully reversed that. That was in 2019. This year, he threatened to call an early general election in order to save his own skin. Thankfully, he didn't do that as well. But he really exposed the sort of creaky underpinnings of our constitution. So for these reasons, and to help bring Britain together in a sort of positive act of self-creation, where we finally have a document fit for the 21st century, I think the United Kingdom needs to codify its constitution and bring it in line with best practice throughout the rest of the world. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you read it and enjoy. Luke Hallam's piece, called Britain Needs a Real Constitution, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Richard Reeves. Richard is a senior fellow at Brookings and the author of a number of really interesting books, including Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem and What to Do About It, and most recently, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling. We had a really interesting conversation about the state of society in democracies like the United States and beyond, about why it is that the people who are most influential in society and are blocking the upward social ladder aren't just the top 1%, not the top 0.1%, not just the billionaires, they are a much broader group of upper middle class people. And about why Richard believes that there are many structural impediments for young men to succeed at the moment. Why it is that young men do so much worse in high school, in college, why so much greater percentage of them is threatened by drug addiction and other deaths of despair it is a really interesting conversation that gives insight into a broad range of important social issues that give a kind of correction to how we should think about the world today. Richard Reeves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Yasha. So Richard, I want to start by talking about one of your last books, which is called Dream Hoarders. And I think it makes a really interesting, convincing case that the problem in the United States is not necessarily, as uh, Bernie Sanders used to say, the millionaires and the billionaires, but rather the people who are in the upper middle class, the people at the top 20% of society. That is not the super rich who hoard all of the dreams, but rather probably you and me, probably many of the people who listen to this podcast, many people who are highly educated, who have nice jobs, who aren't plutocrats by any stretch of the imagination, but who have built these enclaves of privilege. Tell us a little bit about the dream hoarders and why we should think about some of the problems of inequality and lack of opportunity in America in those terms. Yeah, I think that's where the real economic cleavage is. So when I look at what's happened around inequality, it is, as you say, not so much the difference between the top 1% or 0.1%, but the higher people go up the income distribution, the more they push the problem, right? It's always the person richer than them that's the problem. I don't see that as the most important cleavage. I see the most important cleavage as this one between the upper middle class. So these are folks who are measuring their income in hundreds of thousands of dollars, but not hundreds of millions of dollars, them and everybody else. So if you look at the bottom 80% of the income distribution in the US, looks pretty similar today as it did in the late 70s. 
There hasn't been much increase in income inequality there. It's not like the people in the middle have pulled away from people at the bottom. What's happened is that the people at the top have pulled away from everybody else. And that really starts to happen at this top 20% or if you want top 15%, but it is this comfortable six-figure incomes, four-year college degrees, probably married, etc. And I think that's a much more important cleavage for a number of reasons. One, there's a lot more people in the top 20% than in the top 1%. Right. There's just more votes, more power, and much more political power. So it's easy to talk about how the plutocrats have all this political power, but combined, the upper middle class run everything, every institution, every media outlet, every professor, like they are the professional class. And secondly, because as a class of that size and with so much more money, and they are taking so much more of the share of income, they can then do all kinds of things to secure their position. So they can hoard. And so they can rig the housing market in such a way as to exclude other people from affordable housing and from those areas. They can rig higher education by making it incredibly expensive and hard to access and pulling all kinds of strings to get their kids in there too. And so they can essentially rig two of the most important markets for opportunity, housing and education in favor of themselves, which means that then their kids are likely to inherit an upper middle class position too. And I think that's what's driven a lot of our political divides. I think that a lot of the populist anger we're seeing is not against the plutocrats, much though Bernie Sanders might wish it to be so. It's against the professionals. It's against people like you and I. It's against people with you know, nice houses in Bethesda or where, you know, wherever you want to choose or Palo Alto uh, and kids and you know, four-year degrees and so on. The people who are doing well, and that's a much broader swath than just top 1%. And the last thing to say is one of the motivations of that last book is is rather too convenient for people who are merely on, say, $300,000, $400,000 a year, whose house is only worth a million dollars, to say, I'm not the problem. The real inequality problem is Jeff Bezos and the billionaires and the millionaires, because nobody wants to think they're part of the problem. And nobody wants to think that they might have to give up something like the zoning or the mortgage interest deduction. So it was a bit too convenient, self-serving. Yeah, one of the things that I always notice is that people are very reluctant to think of themselves as part of an elite. So when I teach my students, I say, you are will be members of the American elite. And they bristle at that, in part because there might be denial about the class position of their own parents, in part because they might genuinely come from backgrounds that aren't all that privileged and haven't quite understood the way in which their degrees at a fancy college and the kind of career plans they have are going to quite quickly catapult them into this category of a broad socioeconomic elite that really is influential in those ways. Let me ask you a sort of a skeptical question about this, which is, all right, so, you know, perhaps there is a growing divide between the top 20% and the people below that. Why isn't that a kind of trickle-down phenomenon? Or why is it that, you know, they are hoarding the dreams? Why is it that the success and the improvement of living standards for the top 20% of the last 30 or so years has actually come at the expense of the other 80%. In which ways is the title of the book justified so that we can actually say this is an example of how the hoarding those dreams and making them inaccessible to others? Yeah, well, it's particularly true when there are trade-offs that are closer to zero sum, like like land is a great example on housing and so on too. But we could also maybe talk about places in higher education. And there are two mechanisms by which this group, the upper middle class, are able to sustain their position and pass it on as a bequest to their children. One is through standard meritocratic processes. So they acquire for themselves huge amounts of human capital and then for their kids. And so the kids win in the race, fair and square, but because they've had such an incredible start. Now that's fair, quote unquote fair in the narrowly meritocratic sense. And this is obviously something you've talked a lot about on this podcast, including with Michael Sandel and others. But the hoarding aspect comes is it's not just that they're winning in those markets, but that they are rigging those markets in ways that preference themselves and exclude others. And so the way the housing market works, for example, is that you have mortgage interest deduction, which allows people to buy expensive houses. And then they use zoning to exclude others from those neighborhoods. And you know, we know that it's more liberal areas have more exclusive exclusionary zoning, which means that access to other goods like the schools in those areas are harder for other people to gain. And it's a notable fact about the geography of the US that whereas racial segregation of our neighborhoods has declined somewhat, economic segregation has increased. And so what we're seeing is this kind of hoarding in space 
And then to some extent, that allows them then, the kids are going to go off to better colleges anyway, but then through the application of various mechanisms like early admissions, legacy preferences, gaming of scholarships, etc. They're also able to hoard more of the places at higher education institutions too. And some of these numbers are small, I don't want to overstate them, but for every kid who takes a place they wouldn't otherwise have gotten, that is a kid who's not going, right? Just because you don't know who the victim of that is, the person who's being hoarded out, if you like, doesn't mean that that victim doesn't exist. So it's more the way that the power of this class, our class, <laughs> is used to exclude others and you see it you know close at hand so in in these neighborhoods so i you know neighborhood i I know best having raised my kids there is bethesda maryland where you would absolutely see the signs saying you know hate has no home here black lives matter and then no development because there were people trying to build more affordable housing nearby and for the people in those houses they were perfectly consistent but in my view deeply hypocritical yeah, I think, you know, we always talk too much about Ivy League universities and so on, but it's also a great example of why you need the top 20% to dream hoard to get to these problematic outcomes. I mean, you know, in terms of justice, it is really enraging when a billionaire gives, uh, you know, a large donation to a university and their mediocre child therefore gets a place at that university. Very, very bad. But obviously, there's not that many billionaires and there are not that many people who give these huge donations. So that only occupies so and so many seats, right? But if it's millions of people who are in the top 15, top 20% of the US population who rig the game in terms of who gets access to good neighborhoods, good schools, how the admission system is set up. So you have to have the right kinds of extracurriculars. You have to know how to write an admissions essay and all of those kinds of things. That helps to explain how it actually crowds out the talented person who's not from that kind of social background. Exactly. The point you've just made is important, which is sometimes it's it's as simple as something like resisting attempts to simplify a system. Like I think one of the things that's underrecognized in this is that complexity is the friend of the upper middle class. If you have a Byzantine college application process, right, and you have a European background like me, Yasha, so it's like when you encounter the US college admission system, you're like, what is going on here? But actually, complexity is great if you know how to game it. And so that's another way in which the hoarding takes place is by having complex systems that it's harder for other people to navigate. So simplification is the friend of equality. It's one of the reasons why it's so strange to me that the abolition of the SATs, but I feel somewhat ambivalent about, uh, but the abolition of the SATs has become the sort of course celebre of supposedly anti-racist activism, because I think it's quite clear that the SATs actually helps underprivileged kids to have a shot at getting to better colleges, I think, compared to the admissions essay, which I was as even more weight. It is likely to actually favor people from racial minorities. It is certainly likely to favor smart kids from less privileged backgrounds socioeconomically relative to the admissions essay. Let's touch for a moment on the politics of this. So you said that that helps to explain the populist angle over the last years. Now, especially in early episodes of this podcast, there was this sort of constant debate because it was a big thing at the time. Is the explanation for the rise of populism economic or is it cultural? It seems to me like here we have a nice example of how those two things go together. Because I take it that you're saying a lot of the Trump phenomenon, a lot of that kind of populist anger is to say, we are rebelling against this broad 15, 20% elite class that both holds a lot of economic power and economic privilege, but also is imposing its sort of cultural view of a country and the rest of the population. And we are rejecting all of those things at the same time. Is that roughly the argument? Or what do you think the, the form of this populist revolt against the dream holders is taking? Yeah, I think that that's, and again, I know it's something you've talked about a lot here, but I think the blending of cultural and economic factors, which is what makes for class, in many ways, is absolutely salient here. And so when I was writing the book, I remember like one of my colleagues saying to me, well, it's all about food, isn't it? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, you know what class someone is by what food they eat or what the food they think other people should eat and what views they have about what food other people should eat and what restaurants they go to and so on. I didn't end up writing about that, but I actually thought I probably should have done because there is something about that, like something like where you eat, what you eat, how you eat. There's a great example of like, it's partly about money. Like who can afford Starbucks, for example, or whatever the equivalent is. So it's about money, but it's also about what does that signal, right? What kind of, it has to be organic or it has to be whole foods or like the whole famous whole food stuff. There's something to that which fuses these two things together. And I think that's what was one of the things that was so frustrating about that debate 
which I think you helped to cut through, which is like it's both, right? The idea that it's separate. But in this upper middle class, you managed to create a bunch of people who were both rich, getting richer, and culturally detaching from the rest of society. And so you saw the detachment happening on multiple dimensions at once. And that's what really makes for class fracture. If it was just economics, it would be much less. If it was just culture, if it was just geography, but it was all of them at the same time. Why is it that the dream hoarders are on the left? So, you know, I think this phenomenon is clearly related to what Thomas Piketty has been writing a lot about over the last 10 years, that, you know, 40 years ago, if you knew that somebody was at the bottom of the income distribution, it basically told you that they most likely, not certainly, there was always a good number of exceptions, but most likely voted for a left-wing party, whether it's a party socialist in France or the Democrats in the United States. And now when you know that somebody is a professional, with a higher education that tells you they're very likely to vote for the left, whether it's the Democrats in the States or, again, the, the Parti Socialiste or perhaps the Green in France or perhaps the Green Party in Germany. But why is it? I mean, why is it that this cultural background music to the dream hoarding is taking a left-wing cue rather than a right-wing cue? I'm not sure that I would have predicted that 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one is, I should have said college education as one of these other fractures, but one is that the dream hoarders do have four-year college degrees and typically are married to somebody else or with someone else who has four-year college degrees. So very, very high levels of education. And that's become increasingly associated with being on the left. You know, we've seen this increasing correlation between education and voting patterns. And I think we're seeing that even more so now. If you look at the recent polling, I was looking at the polling for attitudes towards the college loan cancellation, student debt cancellation. And I was looking for gender differences. And there are some pretty big gender differences, actually, but they're dwarfed by the class differences as measured by education. And so I think that's number one. But number two is that actually over time, we are seeing more of the top 20% going to the left. That is a trend. But I also think there's something else, which is like, it's, it's not all of them by any means. So you are seeing quite a lot of the top 20% vote, still voting Republican, but in a less concentrated fashion. So in a small town, for example, there's going to be a bunch of people who are in the top 20% of the even the national income distribution. So it's going to be maybe a lawyer, maybe the guy that runs the you know secondhand car, sales room, a plumber, just who's doing very well with small businesses. They're going to do what? The high income. But they're not concentrated in parts of the country where everybody else around them is like them. And so their cultural power is much less. And so it's really when you see the concentration of dream hoarders in certain places, this is like, you know, super zips or whatever you want to call them, that I think that they then have this kind of disproportionate power and then they tend to be very left and select into neighborhoods that are very left. Thank you for indulging me for talking about your last book because I know that eventually people get tired of talking about the past work and especially when they have a really exciting new book coming out and you have an exciting new book coming out as we're recording this, I think in two days, Court of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters and What to Do About It. Is the modern male struggling? What's the evidence for that? Why should we think that that is the case? Quite a lot of modern boys and men are struggling in a number of domains, in particular in the education system, in the labor market and in terms of their relationships within family life. So the answer, of course, for someone who's just written a book about the problems facing boys and men is, yes, I think there are a whole series of problems that are facing them, which we can get into. But the broad story here, I think, is that as we have moved towards gender equality generally, as women and girls have caught up with, and in many cases overtaken boys and men on some fronts, that both allows us to, but I also think, and requires us to take more seriously some of the inequalities that run the other way. And so just to kind of put a couple of data points like on the table to help frame the conversation, the gender gap in getting a four-year college degree today in the US is wider than it was in 1972 when the Title IX laws were passed, but the other way around. So in 1972, obviously, it was mostly men getting four-year college degrees and now it's mostly women, but the gap between those two is wider than it was 50 years ago. Men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree. Now it's 15 percentage points more likely for a woman to get a four-year college degree. So it's not the women have caught up that they've overtaken such that there is now a bigger gender inequality in higher education than when Title IX was passed, but the other way around. And there are lots of other examples. In the labor market, this is particularly an issue for the US, or it's the sharpest issue in the US. Most men in the US earn less today than most men did in 1979. 
Wow. So if you imagine American men as a nation, and we're measuring their position by their earnings alone, they would be poorer. They've gone in the last you know, four or so decades. And why is that? Is that just sort of a stagnation of incomes and some decrease in incomes for manual laborers? Is that men dropping out of a workforce altogether? What's driving that? Well, of course, that's a separate problem of some men dropping out of their workforce altogether. But this is, you know, by and large, driven by those who are working. And what we've seen is that a lot of traditionally male jobs, if they haven't disappeared, they've seen significantly reduced wages in areas like manufacturing, heavy industry, and so on, in part because of growing competition from overseas, and in part because of growing competition from machines, from robots. And so what that's meant is that actually the value of that labor has become less, and in particular for less skilled men, earning a lot less. Now, there is an argument that I take quite seriously that actually, if we go back to earlier periods, that some of the unskilled men, especially if they were white, were actually being overpaid against productivity. There was some rent in there as well, as a result of very high levels of unionization and the exclusion of other groups who could be competitive and before international competition came along. And so there is an argument, and people on the right, people like Scott Winship at AI make this argument, that this is an unwinding of the rents <laughs> that men were getting before. So they were being overpaid before, and it's correcting now. I think that's part of the story, for sure. I think it would be wrong to deny that. But I think the bigger part of the story is just these general economic trends away from these traditionally male jobs have just meant that there's just been this stagnation in the middle and even a decline at the bottom. It's worth saying that men at the top of the distribution are doing better than men at the top of the distribution were before. So the dream hoarding men are still doing very well indeed, thank you very much. They haven't seen increases quite the same as women at the top. And then in the family, which is the third area I focus on mostly, the, the dramatic alteration of the economic relationship between men and women as a result of the entirely positive increase in women's economic power has been to ask hard questions of the role of men in the family. And what that's meant is a really significant shift in terms of marriage patterns, again, especially by class. So 40% of children are born outside marriage now in the US, that's four times as many as back in the late 70s. But in particular, you're seeing this big social class gradient where marriage has become much, much less common for those lower down the socioeconomic scale. And more importantly, Fathers who can't fulfill this obsolete model of fatherhood, which was primarily about breadwinning, are benched. Sometimes they bench themselves or they get benched by society. Sometimes they get benched by the mothers, if we're being candid. But it's like, okay, well, you can't do what you're supposed to do, which is be a breadwinner. And given the economic trends, what I've just described, that's not surprising. And so you're obsolete. So rather than reinventing fatherhood, recasting it for a world of greater gender equality, instead, we're just allowing it to become somewhat obsolete. And then we see men getting detached from family life from their kids as a result. I feel like five or six years ago, there was this spate of articles arguing, roughly speaking, that you know the old model of courtship was that a male of professional status, for example, might marry a female who's sort of one or two steps below in the social rung, right? I'm sort of a doctor who marries the nurse and the lawyer who marries the secretary and so on. And I suppose those articles made two points. One of them was that that actually was a way of limiting the dream hoarding because there was some amount of class mixity that could happen as a result of that. And the second was that that sort of matched the background educational qualifications in the country at the time, for unjust reasons, of course, because many women were uh, excluded from higher education and from real opportunity in that domain, but it nevertheless matched. And that sort of the shift has been to sort of professional men marrying professional women, which means that they suddenly don't just have much higher incomes than they would have done 50 years ago, because lawyers and doctors make a lot more money than they did half a century ago. But they double those incomes because suddenly it's a couple in which both are doctors or both are lawyers, or one is a doctor and one is a lawyer. But the other problem then becomes that if the expectation historically has been for women to marry a man who is a, you know, half a step above him in social status, and suddenly you have more women getting four-year college degrees than men, you know, women actually being very successful in the workplace, there's simply not enough highly successful, highly educated men to go around for those women. And so you end up with problems of family formation and so on. Again, I'm sort of repeating the argument of these articles that I vaguely recall them from five or six years ago. Does that sort of concord with the research you've done in this place? Is that a problem in terms of 
the formation of, of stable families in terms of people being able to find romantic partners they're happy with in terms of the ability of society to have kids and all of those kinds of things? Or are you sort of skeptical of that line of argument? I'm mostly pretty skeptical so far. So the phenomenon you're referring to has the incredibly unromantic label of assortative mating, right? It's like not something to put on your Tinder profile, seeking to assortatively mate. I think the way that's called on dating websites is people who claim to be sapiosexual. Okay, good. That's a much better phrase than assortative mating. <laughs> and I think that you've just described how like mechanically there's more of that going on now because professional men can marry professional women because there are professional women now. Interestingly, it's not clear necessarily that there wasn't quite a lot of assortative mating going on in terms of cognitive ability or something similar before, actually. And so I think about my own family. So my dad went to college and had a, a higher status profession. My mom was a nurse, you know, didn't go to college and so on too. But I don't think you could have put much between them in terms of their smarts. It was just that at the time, those were the gender tracks they had. And so and perhaps not in terms of their social backgrounds either, right? I don't know about your particular case, but it may be that if just half as many women at one point went to college than men, you could have a woman and a man who come from exactly the same kind of background. It's just the man was more likely to go to college. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, it's really fascinating to just see that actually back in the seventies for women who did go to college, most of them were married within a year of graduating, right? Which is just an astonishing fact when you think about like when uh, people are marrying now. But the reason I'm mostly skeptical about it is, first of all, uh, we don't know yet because this overtaking really hasn't played out yet in the marriage markets, right? It's just starting to now. So we've just gone past the point where in most marriages now, the woman is more educated than the man. So we've just passed that historical tipping point. By the way, for black couples, it's pretty much always been true. But now it's true for everyone across the board. So we've got a while to go yet before there's this huge gap between college-educated women and uh, non-college-educated men. But the most main reason I'm skeptical is that actually college-educated men and women are still the ones getting married. That's where the decline in marriage has been most muted. And so there's not much evidence yet that that particular education gap is in any way playing into the marriage market. And I think the main reason for that is because those more highly educated men and women want to raise their kids together and they want to combine resources to do that. They want to invest heavily in their kids and pooling income is a great way to do that in, in time and money. And I think that's really the driver between upper middle, you know, for upper middle class marriage. And so I think one of the most important questions you have to answer when you look at this thing is why is it that the most economically powerful women in the history of the world, college educated American women, let's just accept what I've just said, it's broadly true as a class, are the most likely to get married? Certainly in America, but also kind of around the world. What is going on there? And I don't think it's because they're socialized into it or feeling they have to. I think the feminist movement succeeded in making marriage a choice, but they're choosing it. I think they're choosing it because of their kids, which brings us back to where we started because they're highly invested in, I want my kids to succeed. And they know that pooling incomes and family stability are a way to help their kids succeed. The same is not true for working class families and poorer families where marriage has really declined very sharply. That's very interesting. So I think you've, to return to the broader theme here, established very convincingly that men are struggling in America today. We haven't addressed so much about why that is. Now, you know, there's two basic ways to explain it, I assume. One is to say, look, women have just been excluded in deep ways for a very long time. And now, thankfully, we've overcome many, not all, but many of those obstacles. And so women can now do very, very well. And, you know, those two sides of the story aren't really related in a way, right? It just so happens that the background conditions, the background music is that America is not advancing economically as much as it did, and but we haven't done a great job at broadening opportunities. And so men are struggling because they didn't suffer disadvantage 40 or 50 years ago. So that trend is really visible now, right? And perhaps with a little bit of the sort of rent that they were able to gain in the past, in fact. And, you know, women are searching for that reason. I guess another interpretation would be to say that there's something in our society that actually favors women over men, or that there's something which creates unique temptations for men, which lead them astray, which make them incapable of taking the opportunities they might otherwise have. Which of these stories are you advocating in the book? How do you think we can actually explain why this transformation has been so rapid and so extreme? So I think that there's some truth to all of these stories, of course, that's the first thing to say. But 
point number one is that it's false to say that the decline or the difficulties of many men is a result of the rise of women. That's false zero-sum calculation, in, in my view. I think there are separate reasons, by and large, particularly in the economy. Now, it might be true that some men are feeling a sense of a loss of the status that was automatically attributed to them as a result of being male. One of my former colleagues, Dana Bowen Matthew, she's now the Dean of Law at George Washington, says equality always feels like a loss to the people who were previously unfairly ahead. And I think that's a great phrase. I think there's some of that going on. But I don't think it's mostly that. I think it's mostly just a sense of just in absolute terms, like th things aren't going very well. Yeah, I'm nothing in terms of subjective well-being that's very plausible. I'm a big believer in the importance of status in society, and I think a relatively declining status is one of the drivers of populist voting. Quite clearly, Peter Hall and others, very good political science scholars, have shown that. And I think it's perfectly plausible to think that one of the things, sort of psychologically, that ails men in America in 2022 may be, hey, my wife is making more money than me, and you know, that sort of, in addition to the other problems I have, makes me sad or mad or whatever it may be, right? Now, it doesn't explain in any straightforward or any non-straightforward way, I don't think, objective statistics you cited earlier about male income declining and so on and so forth. So I agree that on the metric that really matters here, that can't be the explanation. I think that's right. Clearly, there's some adjustment is required. And there's a lag. There's what Andrew Churling calls like a cultural lag. As we update, you know, our norms and so on. But like that's not the main reason that men are struggling. And nor I think is it because there's some sort of inherent weakness in men, which is a sort of second point you put forward, which gets dangerously close to the language I really dislike around toxic masculinity kind of on the left, but also from a sort of you know Josh Hawley style masculinism on the right, which is that men just need to man up, right? So there's a kind of agreement. Masculinity is the problem in that framing. Either there's too much of it if you're looking at it from the left, or not enough of it, if you're, not, if you're looking at it from the right. But either way, it's about the men. And what you're turning it into is a whole series of, it's an individual problem. And it's, it's essentially a mass psychological problem to come back to where we were before. And if men could just get over themselves or you know get back to themselves, that they'd be okay. And I think that misstates the problem. I think that the problem is largely structural. I think that there are structural disadvantages facing boys and men in the current education system, which were invisible until the women's movement really took to breaks off what women could do. I think there are structural problems in the economy, which we've already touched on around some of these decline in these jobs and earnings and so on. And I think there are structural problems in the family because the basic glue that was used to hold families together, which was the economic dependency of women on men, and therefore the role of men as breadwinners, which tied them to both women and children, has been to successfully dissolved by the women's movement. That means that actually the men who are on the other side of that equation don't quite know what their role is, and they are, as I say, someone's being benched. So in different ways, these are all structural problems. And one of the things I'm at pains to do in the book is to try and point to structural problems facing boys and men rather than individual ones, because too much of the debate has been about how do we fix these boys and men rather than looking around them at, say, an education system, saying maybe the reason why one in four boys are now defined as having a developmental disability isn't actually because one in four of our boys are disabled in that way. Maybe it's the system that's not serving them very well. It's not to say there aren't individual issues here, but I, I'm very troubled by the fact this is a very, very rare instance of a debate where both left and right are incredibly individualistic in their analysis of the problem rather than looking at the structures that are affecting us. Yeah, I just, when you were talking, thought of a strange tension in some kind of standard package of left-wing thought, where when it comes to African-American poverty, the work of Tanahisi Coates and others has argued very, very forcefully against the cultural framing, right? Saying, look, like when Barack Obama went to Morehouse College and told black fathers to take on more personal responsibility, that is blaming the victim, right? That is individualizing a structural problem in a way that really misses the mark. And then when it comes to boys and men, it is true that actually there is a kind of oddly parallel set of claims often being made, right? Like, why are men struggling? Why are they not being educated and so on? Well, it's because of a toxic masculinity. It's because of these sort of cultural pathologies. And it sounds in a certain kind of way awfully similar. So you're right that if we should be skeptical, I mean, I guess it could go either way. And there are certainly some differences between the two cases. I don't want to be too glib here. But if you're very skeptical of that explanation for African-American poverty, 
then perhaps one should also be skeptical about explanation for why boys and men are lagging behind today. Yeah. I think at the very least, you should be open to that possibility. You shouldn't rule it out at the outset. And a quick example of that, which I did some work on, was the fact that men were so much more likely to die from COVID, just globally and more generally. And so at least 50% more likely to die from COVID. And there were massively higher death rates among men than women in the US, massively higher. And the immediate reaction of people was to say, it's because they drink and smoke too much. That wasn't the reason. It's because they refuse to wear masks or get vaccinated. No. Case rates were exactly the same. And it turns out there are some biological differences. And it's always been true, the same with SARS and so on. So, so again, it's like it's just an interesting question. Like, what that's an interesting, like, why have twice as many middle-aged men died from COVID as, as middle-aged women in the US? That's an interesting question. And it may be that it's all about individual factors, pre-existing conditions, but you wouldn't assume that for other groups. So let's look and let's see. And it turns out that most of it was biology, and that might be important for public policy. It might or might not be, but but it's interesting to me, just the default was. Toxic masculinity is the only thing that could be killing men. And that's not a framing that would be applied elsewhere. And it's, a, in my view, a, an inappropriate framing and actually one that, if anything, is counterproductive, certainly in terms of the political message you end up sending. Certainly morally, I think it's just obnoxious to say, oh, 50% more of this group are dying. Well, it must be because there's something wrong or bad about you because you're engaging in these toxic behaviors. And then, yes, it may well have relevance for how you can educate people or how you might be able to help them stay safe. That depends on the context and so on. Let's go back to this point you were making that actually there's structural disadvantages here. Talk us through that in something like the case of education, which I think has the most striking set of disparities. What are the structural disadvantages? I mean, you know, boys, I assume, have access to very similar quality schools than girls. It's not like we live in the 19th century where, you know, boys were being sent off if you, they came from elite families to really wonderful fancy schools and girls were kept at home to prepare to be good wives and so on, right? It's not like we have the inverse of that going on today, statistically, perhaps in some family, but certainly not on average, sort of in certain kind of structural terms on the surface, you might say, well, surely boys have the same opportunities because, just speaking, we're born to the same families with the same socioeconomic standing, and their parents are as keen to give them educational advantages as they are to their daughters. So where's the structural disadvantage here? Yeah, well, it's why the gender gap, of course, is a very interesting one, precisely because everything else equal, you know, boys and girls are born pretty much at random. It's a social scientist's dream in a certain kind of way. Yeah, it's close to random assignment into families. And so the fact you do see these huge gender gaps in education, especially at the bottom of the distribution, I can't emphasize that enough. Right? Just the gender gaps just get bigger and bigger the further down you go. You can actually look at even siblings, right? So you can look at how girls and boys from the same families are doing at school. And the best studies do that because they're the same families, the same schools, the same parents, the same household income, the same neighborhoods. And you still, you see these huge gaps. I think the structural disadvantage is two, largely as a result of two things. The big one is the education system presumes that girls and boys mature at the same rate and they don't. Boys mature much more slowly than girls or at different times than girls do. And so chronological age is a proxy for development. Like when should you start school? When should you move on to the next grade? So, But there's actually a very big gap in the brain development of girls and boys. And that gap is at its widest in adolescence. So 15, 16 year old you know, girl is between a year and two years ahead of the same age boy in terms of the development of her prefrontal cortex, sometimes called the CEO of the brain. That's the bit that says, no, you should study, not go out. You should turn your homework in and you should plan ahead. And have you thought about which college you're going to? And have you worked on your essay? Yeah, all that stuff. So girls are better at that than boys anyway, but most importantly, they get better at it much sooner. The boys catch up later in their 20s. That period is incredibly important in the US education system. And so when I look at the GPA distribution, for example, and GPA will become more important as SAT is dropped, for some of the reasons, like, which is interesting, given what we just talked about in college admissions. If you take the people with the top GPA, so 10% top GPA, two-thirds of them are girls, two to one, female, male, at the bottom of the distribution, the other way around. That is no surprise to anybody that's actually done any brain science in this area. And so in all the debates about the differences between male and female brains, the biggest one of all is not how they develop, but when they develop. Again, these distributions overlap. Let's take that as a given. On average, boys are at a disadvantage because their brains haven't developed and it's quite big at the age of five and it's pretty big at the age of 15. And so no one planned it that way. This wasn't some century old feminist 
trap that would suddenly get revealed a hundred years later when finally women were able to, able to it's completely accidental but i think nonetheless clearly true and now we've taken the brakes off women their natural advantage in the education system is leading to these incredibly superior performances and the second thing that's happening is that the teaching profession is becoming more and more female over time and so schools are becoming much more feminine environments if you like just numerically empirically so 76 percent of k-12 teachers now are female and that's rising all the time so the trend is in that direction there are no male early years teachers there's only one in ten elementary school teachers are male and dropping quite quickly and so the schools themselves are increasingly becoming much much more female uh, environments and the evidence suggests that that actually does lead to worse outcomes for boys and men for reasons that are a bit unclear but the results nonetheless are pretty compelling so in terms of both age and if you like the ethos of the school the, the education system is somewhat more female friendly than male friendly so that's an example of a structural disadvantage like one in four black boys are held back a grade. I don't think that's because there's something wrong with the boys. I think it's something wrong with the education system. In that case, of course, race is a big factor there too. Rather than individualizing that, let's look at the system. This is another case where the political scripts of the left and right are flipped. In general, progressives tend to believe very strongly in the role model effect. So that is incredibly important, for example, to have a teacher of your race or of your cultural background, perhaps of your religion, because that really helps you see yourself as a potential future educated person or somebody with opportunity and so on. It helps you identify and so therefore perhaps you want to please them more. There's various questions about what the mechanisms are, but there tends to be a real emphasis on this is why it's so important to have a diverse set of people teaching university, for example, and have diverse role models in society as a whole. And I know that some economists who are pretty skeptical about a lot of this literature, like Tyler Cohen, actually believe that the role model effect really is strong. But then, of course, when it comes to this, I think a lot of progressives would say, well, I mean, if most teachers are women, that's fine. And why should we be worrying about these boys who are underachieving? But again, if you think that in principle, it could be that role models are more strongly coded via ethnicity or race than they are via gender, and perhaps it matters in one context and not the other, that's certainly theoretically possible. But one should at least be open to the argument that if you strongly believe in role model effect in a cultural context or in a racial context, it would be a little bit surprising if it didn't also play some role when it comes to gender. Yeah, and I agree with everything you've just said. And I think there's an additional dimension to this too, which is that Gloria Steinem said that you get your ideas of what men and women are like from your infancy. And I had this issue with my own kids, where it took me ages to persuade them that they could be doctors because all the doctors they saw happened to be female. It took me ages to persuade them could be teachers because all the teachers they had until secondary school were female. And so there's a nice phrase from the women's movement, which is you can't be it if you can't see it, or you have to see it to be it. But that's equally true in this area too. And so if you take early years education, here's where I think the fact that there are basically no men, it's like 2% of pre-K and kindergarten teachers are male, which is about half as many, in fact, it's about a third as many as there are women flying US military planes. So we have more women flying military jets by a factor of two or three than we do men teaching pre-K. Proportionally, of course, because I assume there's more pre-K teachers than, than military pilots. Yeah. As a share of the occupation, thank you for that important correction. Yes. Now, I'm going to risk people's wrath here and say, I think it's more important to get men into kindergarten classes than it is to get more women into the cockpits of fighter jets. To be clear, I want as many women flying fighter jets as are best at flying fighter jets, right? Because as a citizen of the country, I just want the best people shooting down bad people from our fighter jets. But what message are we saying to our kids if there are literally no men in those pre-K classrooms about the role of men? And so I would have thought that feminists in particular would be all over this issue saying, look, if we surround our boys and girls just with women in these early education, these educational settings, can we then be surprised if their views about gender are not changing very quickly. So I think there's another reason why the left should be much more concerned about this issue than they are. So how much of a problem is all of this? Is this about injustice to the individual boys who should have more opportunity and are being denied it? Is this about sort of some economic maximizing, you know, we're behind our potential. Joe Biden likes to say this in all kinds of contexts, right? Like, you know, we have to compete with these other countries and we need to have the potential of everybody and we're losing, you know, some people who could be productive members of society, but because of these problems, they're not as productive as they might be. Is this a political problem? Is this a problem of polarization in this country? How would you formulate why people who listen to this who might 
not long to some of it, but for it ultimately, you know, among all the problems of this country, why should this be a priority? Why should we care? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we can think two thoughts at once. We can have more than one problem that we're paying attention to. And so, as it happens, my wife is trying to raise money now for a, a startup business. And so, I know quite acutely that only 3% of venture capital money goes to female founders. So, still quite a bit of work to do there, and we could replicate that across other questions and other issues. But I think the really deep problem here is at a couple of levels. One is just basic human flourishing just a basic sense of like in a just society, we pay attention to how people are flourishing as individuals and groups. And so if you have a group that is three or four times more likely to take their own life than another group, which is true for the suicide gap, I'd want to pay attention to that. If you saw a group that was going backwards economically, you'd want to pay attention to that. Purely from the moral perspective, we want a society where everyone can flourish. I don't know a single parent that doesn't want their son to flourish in the same way as their daughter and vice versa. Right? I just don't. And I think as a society, that's the right basic message. But I also think, and you've alluded to this too, which is, I think that the failure to address some of these problems sensibly and responsibly creates a very dangerous cultural and political vacuum. I think it's an axiom of politics that if there are real problems that responsible people aren't addressing, irresponsible people will exploit them. I think it's almost axiomatic. And so if you do have these growing and genuine problems facing many of our boys and men, and if they don't hear responsible people visibly, audibly addressing them, and instead, at worst, sometimes being told, well, if there is a problem, it's just your fault, we shouldn't then be surprised if they become vulnerable to the attentions of a demagogue or a populist. And so I do think in the end, this does come back to you, some of your themes, Yasha, which is that this dislocation that a lot of men are feeling, if it's not addressed, left unaddressed, can lead some people to the right. It's not a coincidence that Donald Trump won in 2016 with the biggest gender gap in exit polling history. It's not a coincidence he picked up some votes among Black and Hispanic men in 2020, even though he picked up college-educated men back the other way, so the education gap again. And so I really do think that just as a, in terms of the flourishing of individuals, but also the basic health of our society, we have to step up. Because if all men here is one side ignoring them or blaming them, and the other side only interested in weaponizing their discontent, then we're in peril. And so that's why I want people of goodwill, particularly those on the center left, to say, okay, we should look at this issue. We should pay attention to this issue. We should do so explicitly. And I think it's a huge political opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, I have two thoughts about this. I mean, one is that it's just striking how much of a gender gap there now is in American politics, not always on the topics where people assume there is one. So polling on abortion, for example, has shown for a long time that there's some difference in intensity of how people who are passionate about this feel. Uh, but actually, in terms of distribution of views, there really isn't much of a structural difference between how men and women feel about those questions. But in broader questions about, you know, do you prefer Democrats or Republicans? How do you feel about Donald Trump and so on? There's now a very strong gender divide. And that gender divide, I believe, is actually stronger among young people than it is among older people. The other thing, I mean, you know, a few years ago, everybody was debating Jordan Peterson, which, you know, some listeners to this podcast may have strong feelings about. And I always thought that you know, he said some things that were sort of straightforwardly true, many things that I disagreed with, but that there was sort of this moment of media panic about his rise, and that really it was sort of a thought of everybody on the centre-left, a thought of us, because we were not able to speak in a clear and orienting ways to young people who may come perhaps sometimes from dysfunctional homes, who may not have very clear role models in their lives, who may be trying to look for a path. And since it would have felt very strange for anybody in my sort of social milieu to say, I'm going to write a book that tries to appeal, not exclusively, but in some ways primarily to young men who are a little bit lost in life and tell them, here are some basic rules for how you should go about conceiving of a meaningful life. If we are not filling that space, it is unsurprising that somebody with whom I have some robust political disagreements then would end up becoming a star by moving into that empty space. Yes. It's a vacuum that's created by it. I honestly think that anybody that doesn't take seriously the appeal of people like Jordan Peterson, especially to young men, just isn't paying attention and isn't being serious. So whatever we think of him, and I treat some of his work in my book, and I have many criticisms of what he's done, but I also have a great deal of 
admiration in some ways for the fact that he does make a lot of these young men feel listened to. He clearly has genuine compassion for them. I don't like where his ideology goes and he thinks out loud. So he's bound to say something stupid or crazy. Every 10 sentences are going to contain three horrific ones. But most importantly, and he's not the only one, there is this reservoir of unmet questions and need and sense of dislocation, disequilibrium and not being listened to, which he has been able to exploit in terms of like what he's done as public intellectual, but which successful populists are also able to exploit. There are also quite a lot of women who are very concerned about the men in their lives. <laughs> and so you can sometimes pick some of them up as well. And so I just think as a general principle, there's a gender equality council now in the White House, just put out a report. There isn't a single gender inequality it treats that goes the other way, not a single one. And for me, that's just a huge missed opportunity. If you could have just said we're a gender inequality council, let's say 90% of the things it discussed were still facing women and girls, but let's say it talked a bit about deaths of despair, incarceration, how boys have fallen behind in education, just picked up two or three issues instead. But here, there's a gender inequality the other way. I think that would have paid massive political dividend. But I don't think that's quite permissible on the left right now. And so it is leaving this gap. And I really do fear that this could get worse before it gets better. As we approach the midterms, I fear that the Democrats are doubling down in some ways on their current agenda, which I think may have the effect of worsening the gender divide even more than we've seen it in recent years. Final question, very simple. What do we do about all of this? Well, we start by not using the phrase toxic masculinity. We could just abandon that. That would be great. Allow ourselves to think two thoughts at once. Accept the fact that there are real problems being faced by many boys and men that are not of their own making and that we should address as parents, as individuals, as community leaders and institutions without in any way having to give up any pre-existing commitments that I think many of us have towards the women's movement and what needs to be done and support those politicians and leaders who are actually willing to take this issue head on in a responsible way. Right now, the responsible people are running silent on this issue and the irresponsible people are making hay with it. And so I think part of it is just let's start to have this conversation in a way that's trusting and open. I think merely accepting there are some problems here that we should address is step number one. And I don't think we've made that st step yet, but I sense in my early conversations around this that there is an appetite for it. And I do feel that if we don't start addressing it now, it'll be harder to address in 10 years. I'm afraid that unless we start to deal with some of these trends, they will be harder to address 10 years from now. They are festering right now. And I think if we don't start trying to heal them now, we'll regret it 10 years from now. Richard Reeves, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.